2: Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode 330, and I am Nathan Gilmore. I'm a professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Joining me online today, uh, coming to you from Alabama, is Dr. David Grubbs. David, how are things?
0: Things are. It's it's Friday, which is always an enormous relief, and next week... All of my students, all I, I, the only classes I teach are writing and literature for the junior class. All of my students are gone all week on a multi-state college tour. So excited.
1: Are they like so, singing at the colleges or?
0: <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, no, no. They're like visiting dorms and getting stuck in elevators and whatever it is that they do. Um, okay. Yeah, and... Of course, what that means is I'm going to be getting to sub in other classes, but you know,
2: yeah, yeah, that's a, <laughs> we should be real about that. We should be real about that.
0: No, no, nonetheless, um, I'm excited for them. They're 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 excited for a little bit of a break in the schedule, and you know, it's an, it's a nice little break for me too. So yeah, you
2: know, it's fun. Very cool. Also, being real and coming at you from the state of Georgia, it's Dr. Michael Farmer teaching at a uh, location that is still undisclosed michael how are <laughs> things in your undisclosed location
1: i'm sure if you google my name and high school you will probably find it but i am not supposed but don't to. do it don't i'm not supposed it. to announce it uh, <laughs> publicly i'm not sure that my my yeah, yeah, but really care. Cheney
2: joke. i'm gonna work this dick cheney joke every chance that i get <laughs>
1: <laughs> coming from an underground bunker in atlanta <laughs> nice i'm good this year we're recording on friday afternoons uh which is a uh a tiresome time of the week do you know what i mean i do know what you mean so i i am kind of low energy and i do apologize that we missed last week listeners i got roped into a parent teacher meeting right at the end of the day and couldn't get home in time to record but here i am today
2: right on Listeners, you should remember that uh, Michael will be at the Catholic Writers
1: Conference. Catholic Imagination Conference.
2: Catholic Imagination Conference, which is what I meant to say. Michael, tell them a little bit about it.
1: Yep, it's a a two-day conference, uh, September 30th and October, I almost said December 1st, at the University of Dallas, in wherever the University of Dallas is. It's not actually Dallas, it's right outside the city. (laughs) So I will be there talking in a panel about translation. Uh, My essay is called uh, Translation as Vocation and Conversion. It's all about my translation of Gabriel Marcel, and it kind of talks about my conversion to Catholicism, which was happening at the same time. Uh, And then uh, there's a bunch of other much more famous people. I think Liz Brunig is going to be there. Uh, Dana Joya, who we're talking about today, is going to be there. Uh, Abigail Favale, who I interviewed years ago on Christian Humanist Profiles and who is the the progenitor of maybe the biggest fight Nathan and I have ever had on the air or off the air.
2: (laughs) I I was wondering if you were going to bring that up, and it looks like you are. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, so I'll, I'll try to bring that up to her when I see her, too. So it well, should that, be a that good would time. Be awesome.
2: That would be awesome. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it should be a good time. So if any of our listeners are there, please uh, come say hello to me. I'm sure I am going to be very nervous about being the least famous person at this conference. The least famous, least qualified.
2: My uh, colleague, uh, Chris Pipkin, is going to be there at that conference. So oh, tell him to I, come to told, me. I've told him to be sure to say howdy.
1: The only problem is I think I am opposite a session where James Matthew Wilson is reading poetry. And if I were anybody, I would go see James Matthew Wilson read poetry instead of hearing me bladder on about translation.
2: Right, right. And I forget when, when we did that conference in Iowa, they booked us opposite a much, much bigger name. And I can't even remember who it was, but
1: I remember having the same thought. It's just nice to be asked to do things ultimately. You know, when I, oh, when sure, I translated sure, sure. that play, no. the, I really wanted to be asked to give a lecture somewhere and I really wanted to be uh, I, I really wanted the play to be put on. The second thing hasn't happened yet, but um, I'm really honored. I'm missing a huge event at my school. They uh, they have an all-night reading of the of, of the Odyssey. Um, oh, the Home Marathon. Yeah, you've oh, heard of the Home wow, Marathon. That's
2: cool. Oh, we we do Home Marathon at Emmanuel College.
1: Oh, so we didn't invent it. But anyway, the <laughs> students The students. Well, maybe we're copying you. Now, our our last year was our first one. Oh, never mind. The students found out that I'm not going to be there, and they were really mad. And I said, uh, "Hey, look, take it up, take it up with, uh, take it up with the teacher who organizes it, because she knew. She asked me when I wasn't going to be able to be there, and I said September 30th is the only date I can't do it. And lo and behold, that's the date.
2: There you go. There you go. Lots going on around the network, too. Uh, the Christian Feminist Podcast has uh, recently uh, done an episode on, I, I can't remember, is it a book or a film called Hunger? Oh, it's a book. It's Roxane Gay's it's memoir. That's right. That's right. That's right. I, I, I remembered Hunger, but then I, I hungered for further memories.
1: That is a um, raw episode, I'll say. thats a, it, It's a good listen, but it's a tough listen. Okay.
2: And uh, Before They Were Live has reached Zootopia. Uh, Which we I take a giant dump on. Okay, I'm, I'm looking forward to listening to that. I might listen to that on the way
1: actually, home today. We actually we actually don't take a giant dump on it. Our argument is it's a great movie, but also just highly immoral. Like the the message of that movie is so dangerous and poisonous, but the movie is so good. And oh so yeah, I mean, fun.
2: I I remember having big philosophical problems with it. So I'll I'll listen, and uh, you know, I'll probably let you know off the air, Michael, what I have to say in addition to what you and Alt say. We
1: were very um, we were very judicious in what we
2: said. Very good, very good. Uh, Sectarian Reviews got a recent episode on contemplative Christianity.
1: Also, what about uh, Elvis Costello?
2: And one, thank you, about Elvis Costello. Uh, Coyle Neal over at City episode? of Man has interviewed, no, two different ones, has interviewed uh, an author on, um, oh, goodness, it's it's Beyond Racial Something. Man, I really should have these things written down, shouldn't I? Well, but there's sure a couple we'll new watch. City of Man episodes. Um, At any rate, listeners, if you go to christianhumanist.org, you can see uh, all of these things. And the best way to get to them is to hit that microphone icon in the upper left corner that says, listen to our latest. Uh, We have onboard uh, players and also links to uh, subscribe to all of those shows uh, through our new uh, podcasting provider, Castos, uh, which has taken the technical work of the podcast network out of my incapable hands. And I am just loving the uh, the feeling that uh, the next time something breaks down, I can ask somebody competent to fix it instead of trying to fix it myself.
1: Uh, it's a great program. Any, any of our listeners who have podcasts of their own, like we did the other way where we would upload it to an FTP and Nathan would have to schedule it. We did it that way for 12 years because we're insane <laughs> is all I can tell you. And, and also because of so my good. massive
2: ego, I, I would not seek out the help of competent people.
1: I did not know there was another way to do it. So I assumed every podcast did it the way we did it instead of this wonderful program. We should really be getting sponsorship from them if I'm going to say such nice things.
2: With them. <laughs> Maybe I'll email them, Michael. Maybe I'll email them. Well, rate, anyway, listeners, uh, that was a long uh, intro. Uh, but, you know, we, uh, we enjoy talking to each other a little bit before we get down to business. Today's business, though is a recent article in First Things by the California poet Dana Gioia. Uh, he's someone who I met as a graduate student at University of Georgia all the way back in 2002 and really enjoyed when he visited our uh, English Romantic Poets class. And I've kind of been reading around in his corpus ever since. And when I saw this article, the subject matter and the fact that it was Dana Gioia uh, both made me want to read it. And we're going to link to this article in the show notes, so... I'm going to aim our conversation today at some interesting points of conversation rather than summarizing the whole article. You listeners are smart people, you're literate people, you can go read the article. So, Michael, the first thing that I want to engage is the relationship between poetry and the Christian life. In Joya's opening movement, he describes a kind of Christian who has no time for poetry because matters of salvation and activism render poetry a kind of time waster. And yet, just to name two authors that we've talked about on this podcast, on the activist side, James Cone, and on the salvation side, George Lindbeck, insist at every turn that the poetry of the transition of the tradition, pardon me, is precisely what energizes the political action and the theological dialectics that we call Christianity. Am I missing a big tradition or a big faction within Christian circles that really denigrates poetry? Or is Joya giving us a wee bit of a straw man in that opening movement?
1: Oh, I think you're cherry picking here. I think you are talking about intellectual authors who are writing intellectual theology. And I think Joya is talking about just people in the pews, the kind of practical practical people of of Christianity. So I, I don't I don't read him as criticizing a particular theological tradition. I read him as as criticizing a particular practical tradition, which is to say people who don't out and out denigrate poetry so much as just never at all think about it um, think about it in any meaningful way. You know what so, I mean? so yeah,
2: I, I guess what throws me, though, is that he compares poetry to activism. And I think of the people who are activists as very interested in poetry. Uh,
1: well, I mean, James Cohn is, but activism maybe not in the sense of maybe not in the sense of liberation theology, but activism in the sense of the the quadrilateral that defines evangelicalism. I can't remember whose quadrilateral that is. Bevington? Bevington's quadrilateral isn't activism one of the one of the points of that quadrilateral?
2: It is indeed. It is indeed.
1: So you're the only one who still teaches at an evangelical college. How many of your ministry majors are super interested in poetry?
2: Uh, because of our Bible professors, most of them. But we okay. have very good Bible professors.
1: Because I I would I would say that's relatively unusual. And and if you go beyond the ministry majors who are still intellectuals of a sort and look at just like. Rank-and-file Christian business majors, for example, and I I won't even say evangelical because I I think this is probably true of Catholic and maybe even Orthodox business majors. I I I think you will find that they don't read poetry. They wouldn't really consider reading poetry, and the closest thing they come to poetry is whatever gets played at the uh, worship service on Sunday morning. Am I am I way off? Am Am I missing a a huge contingent of poetry uh, readers in the rank-and-file of the Christian church?
0: David, what do you think? Well, I can only say just biographically, even though I considered myself a reader through all of my young life, I never considered myself a reader of poetry until significantly into my teens, almost almost into college. And honestly, it was Tolkien that got me into it. Um, Tolkien was the first time I ever read a book that had significant passages of poetry in it that I read under anything other than duress. Uh, so, you know, uh, it, even even often people who think of themselves as as readers, Christian or not, uh, don't necessarily consider poetry one of those things that they read for 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 fun or out of interest. So, I mean, there may just be a general diminution of the prominence of poetry as something that is read by popular readers, by popular audiences. Um, and that includes evangelicals who often, you know, their, their tastes track with uh, their secular kind of secular peers or, con- or counterparts.
1: Right, and I would never claim that this is a problem in Christianity. This is a problem in modern society, and yeah. Christians are not free from it. And I wouldn't think they—I wouldn't think the proportion of poetry readers, if you took a cross section mm-hmm. of a church on Sunday morning, it wouldn't be different than the cross section you would take of a bar on Saturday night. Now,
0: I, I
2: did. Let, let me ask you this though, real <laughs> quick, David. I mean, yeah. what do we do with the phenomenon? And I realize this is, you know, a segment of American Christianity. It's not the totality of American Christianity, but there are significant segments of American Christianity, I mean, who hear the Psalms read every time they gather for worship. I mean, does that does does that not count as poetry or is that something that people just zone out for or it, it, it just strikes me as, okay, you know, yeah, maybe people aren't going to, you know, the local MFA book launch parties, but... Yeah. Uh they do hear the Psalms read whenever they gather, don't they?
0: I, I am sure there there are many people who are in traditions that have uh, the Psalter as part of their regular liturgy. I don't know how many of those are in what we would call kind of broadly evangelical streams. Um, but even then even even in, in evangelical circles you're you're likely to hear you know some reading of the scripture in uh in this uh the service of worship on sunday and uh often that will be a psalm all right uh, many of the churches that i've been to uh the uh, those who lead in worship those who kind of preside over uh, the musical part of uh the sunday service will you know choose uh, songs that are, are explicitly drawn from the psalter or or just straight up setting a psalm to music but even then there's kind of a weird it, it is kind of a weird special category uh um right uh, i
1: don't think most people would consider that poetry
0: yeah if, I, if you ask them uh, a friend of mine who who was in ministry for years when he was in ministry uh, would would say uh, just without making no bones about it that he he never read he never read any fiction and he had no interest in poetry whatsoever if it wasn't between the covers of the bible and I think because he, he just didn't have any use for, narrative or poetry that didn't have god's stamp on it um didn't have time for it and i feel like we miss something if the only narratives we read are scriptural narratives and the only poetry we read is is uh god's poetry um You know, I know this is probably something we're going to take up later on, but uh, your skill as a reader is developed by reading things of that sort. It's just, it's just Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics. You, you grow in the virtue of being a good reader by reading a lot of the sort of thing you're wanting to read well. And uh, if the only thing that you're ever reading is, is the narratives of scripture and the poetry of scripture, um, I, it's it's as if all of your exercises are live fire exercises in some sense. That makes uh,
2: good sense. That makes good sense. Well, David, I, I did do
1: your, Wait, me- before you go on, did your friend watch movies or anything? Was he just like anti any kind of narrative that wasn't from the Bible?
0: I don't think he ever watched anything for fun that wasn't an athletic event. Huh. Just That's interesting. You got like That's an actual
1: fundamentalist there. You uh, they're they're so rare in the wild.
0: No, uh, and it wasn't um, <laughs> it wasn't a moral standard. He just had no interest. Funny thing, his his wife had been an English major in college, and we had wonderful discussions about Milton and Shakespeare and all sorts of things. He he, he just said, "I'm not interested in it unless unless God wants me to be." I'm like, all right. <laughs> So such people exist and, and they are in churches and you know we uh Yeah, that's a thing.
2: Ha. Huh. All right. Well David, I mean we've been talking a little bit about why well, we've been talking at some length about the Bible. So uh the second movement of this article focuses on biblical text. So I'm gonna let you take the Bible conversation where you will. What would you commend? And what would you approach with caution in uh, Joya's discussion of the Magnificat and other biblical poetic texts?
0: Sure, as we should expect, Joya is himself not only a an interpreter of poetry and an advocate for poetry, but also a writer of poetry. And just in general, I would uh, commend the essay overall, even though this is a an essay in prose. Um, it's still that he still has has a, a flair and a style and there are some beautiful sentences with really nicely turned phrases and so it, it becomes kind of beautiful language in the service of promoting the importance of beautiful language which yeah that I'm I'm down with that so s- some of the the statements that I really uh, appreciated in this section he begins with uh, with the Magnificat coming uh, from the Gospel of Luke and. uh, Asks the question, given that uh, the the gospel has been announced, the coming of Christ uh, in the flesh has been announced, um, what does uh, the Messiah's mother do? Uh, She doesn't sit down and write uh, an essay of biblical theology expounding (laughs) how all of this works instead uh, he says she she begins to sing uh why does the virgin and luke asked joya do something so pres- so preposterous when they could just speak plainly uh, because they both know that ordinary language will not suffice prose cannot express the extent of mary's wonder joy and gratitude i think that is uh i think that's a good way to say it prose uh is meant to be in some sense seen through to the meaning. Uh, but poetry had in in its very self conscious uh, embrace of not only beautiful ideas, but beautiful language uh, attempts to garb those ideas in the, in the best that we that our imaginations can can find for it. Uh, it, it becomes in that sense a kind of act of worship of of decorating our language. Um, for those highest of subjects. One of the things that Mary is also doing that joy doesn't necessarily uh, address is the degree to which her song um, is in the language and often even in the phrasing of uh, the Psalms and of the prophets uh, that when she sings uh, it's it's as if she's doing a reprise of all of these old songs that had looked forward and hope and now uh, she having been an attentive listener to all of the old songs, uh, joins in them as the voice who uh, now has seen the salvation of the Lord. And that that is, uh, I think, a really important thing for Christians to see poetry as something that God's people have been doing for a very, very long time. And when we appreciate it, we're learning the language of our people. When we join in it, we're joining in the language of our people. So... Those are, uh, I, I think, really excellent points. There are a few places where I'm not uh, quite as convinced. Um, he he points to the parables of Jesus, uh, saying that uh, Jesus mostly offered a vision: the kingdom of God, a of divine Father who loves his children, and in this new covenant, God rules not by laws but by love. Laws are ideas written in prose, but love is an emotion. The traditional venue of poetry and. That's one way to look at parables, but Jesus doesn't doesn't speak exclusively in parable. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount has some parabolic statement in it and some poetic passages in it. But it's also an exposition of the ethics of Torah as applied to their context. So. I mean, it's not as if Jesus was just sort of a a first century bard or or folk musician wandering through uh, Judea, you know, surrounded by the flower children, and we just need to learn how to appreciate that. And I think, I know Joya knows that that's not the case, but in his his defense of poetry, I think he might be playing up Jesus poeticness and not Jesus... uh, uh, occasional prosiness.
2: Right. He's also a rabbi, in other words.
0: Yes, exa- right. ex- exactly. <laughs> like, his day job is literally expounding the prose of the law.
2: Right. And then there's the Gospel of John, in which, I mean, there are no parables.
0: <laughs> yes,
2: yeah. <laughs>
1: yes. Although, so, I, I mean, mean I, I, you, I'm sure he, what he would say to that is that the Gospel of John includes incredibly poetic language.
2: It does. Oh, certainly it does. Certainly yeah. it does. But it, 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 it have, also includes, yeah. you know, you know, a commandment so explicit that we've got a day of Holy Week dedicated to it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> right. Well, and uh, I mean, it, it does have, the Gospel of John does have, I am the good shepherd. It does have statements that while not the kingdom of God is like, or the kingdom of heaven is like, it's not parabolic in its genre. It nonetheless is uh, poetic or metaphorical or symbolic in its mode.
2: Right, right. True enough, true enough. Michael, what
0: would you add?
1: Do you get the feeling that he's doing that thing that all pop intellectuals do, including myself, where he just says everything he likes is poetry and everything he doesn't like is against poetry?
2: Oh, goodness, yes. (laughs) The the, the, the Jesus hates (laughs) religion phenomenon. (laughs) Right.
1: I feel like he's playing a game here where if he likes it, it must be poetic. And we're going to get into some of that stuff later but like some of the stuff like if if some of the things he says are poetry are poetry then prose is also poetry right and and yet he he sets he sets poetry off against prose and function and things like that i don't know i um yeah, I'm sympathetic to this argument, but I, it's easier to see when other people are doing it than when you do it, I guess, because I I know that in my writings I have done mm-hmm. similar things. Like if I, I, I have God terms and devil terms, and and so everything I like I can I can, make into a bouquet and put this yeah. term on it. But right. I, I to a, to a man with a
2: not. pope, everything is a schism. That's,
0: just, <laughs> that's right. Can we say that maybe he's more convincing when he praises poetry than when he damns prose yeah yeah i think that's right like that. i think that's right i
1: i think i i would i think i would like this article more if he was if if he went about trying to prove that all these people who don't think they appreciate poetry actually appreciate poetry all the time because poetry is beauty and poetry is the is the body and poetry is the liturgy or whatever i think that would be a more um a more convincing article to me as it is this one this one leaves me a little bit flat i hope he doesn't listen to this before uh (laughs) before this conference he might just come over and play like i'm sure he's 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 a much bigger deal than i am so what does he care what i think
0: yeah sure sure i have a question michael (laughs) um he has a statement I, i i didn't print it out straight off the website and it doesn't have pages anyway so it's difficult to give a page but it's it's in this second movement he has the statement here that the explanation of a sacrament is not only less than the experience of it the act of explaining however clarifying confers no grace okay and i wondered about that uh, a great deal um now uh i i tend to approach the theology of the Lord's table, um, seeing, uh, kind of doing a mashup, uh, of Augustine and his commentary on the gospel of John with, uh, the, the sacrament being a word that you, that you eat with your mouth, you know, that, that you consume with, with both, uh, both physical and with, uh, the sort of the, the mouth of your soul laying hold on, uh, the truth and, and Luther's idea of the sacrament as a kind of uh, received as a kind of word understood. Right. Um, but my understanding, Dana Joya is Catholic, correct? Yes. Okay. And that even, even within Catholicism, the, the efficacy of receiving the sacrament of the Eucharist specifically is dependent on, uh, it, it, is uh, you need to be in a state of grace when you receive and to be in a state of grace kind of seems to me to require mean that when you enter that sacrament you have some sense of what it is so that you know how to have prepared for it rightly this the statement that the explanation of the sacrament is as it, as if it's in some way completely beside the point uh. As if someone who had no idea what the sacrament was would get grace from it and that the act and that the explanation would add nothing to it that that feels weird to me
1: i don't i don't get the feeling that he's saying the explanation adds nothing to it it's just it's not a substitute for it so like okay. when you go when you go through rcia they tell you you know what the what the catholic church teaches about the sacraments what what they're doing at, at which point but like Hearing that, even in RCIA, even even knowing that you are going to receive soon doesn't actually give you the grace that the actual reception gives you. I, I don't get the feeling necessarily that he's he's saying we don't need an explanation.
0: Okay, okay, maybe maybe I'm maybe I'm reading too much kind of negative into it but i i don't know that when i was reading it just it just felt weird because it it sounded to me as if he was saying uh not only does the grace come not through the explanation it become it like like the explanation is just completely beside the point as if no i don't i don't think he's saying that and that that just seems really odd to me
1: Well, I I actually, my bigger problem is with the two sentences right before that one. That's what I have underlined. All the sacraments engage the body and imagination with physical symbols that represent spiritual transformation. They communicate, as poems do, to the full human intelligence, body, mind, and soul, without asking the recipients to divide themselves into anything less than their total identity. See, I, I think here's where he's saying anything I like is a is poetry and anything I don't like isn't poetry. Yep. <laughs> There's an almost blasphemous quality to what he's claiming here for poetry. Poetry is not a sacrament. It doesn't work the way sacraments work. It's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. I write poetry. I read poetry. I'm, I'm very pro-poetry. I think everybody would probably be better off if they read more of it. But it's not. it, it, it does not work the way a sacrament works. And I, I find it at the very least straining of credibility to say that it does.
0: Is this maybe a, a, a little bit of the uh, you know in in, uh, in in sacramental circles, there's kind of a sacrament creep, just like you see in, in some other circles, the kind of the liturgy creep. Yeah, so that everything useful, a so sacrament, everything useful is a liturgy.
1: Oh, gosh. The, the liturgy people. There's there's one particular <laughs> Christian intellectual on Twitter. He's he's relatively famous. I ended up, when I was still on Twitter, I had to block him because all he ever did was, like, he would, like, quote tweet something and and just write hashtag liturgy. Like, come on, <laughs> dude. Why do you have a job at a major university? Oh, what exactly are you adding to this conversation? So, yeah, I... I, I think I think there is some I think there is some sacrament creep. Um, that,
2: that makes some sense.
1: But if, if the if the sacraments, if the seven sacraments are 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 going to be like specific and important channels of grace, right? You you they have to work differently than everything else. Like reading Gerard Manley Hopkins, whom I love, right? Like one of our parakeets is named Jerry. I love Gerard Manley Hopkins. <laughs> it's not the same thing as receiving a sacrament. It's not. And, and, and I don't have to be in a state of grace before I read Gerard Manley Hopkins. You you know what I mean? Reading him, reading him with an un, uh, with an unprepared soul is not reading destruction upon myself. So I, I, I I don't like what he's saying about the sacraments here. I, I don't like, I don't like the, the even sensitive equivalence of, of the poet of poetry and the sacrament. Plus I don't really know that I think poems speak to the full human intelligence. I think they speak to a different part of the human soul than prose does. Um, but for example, I don't think poetry speaks to the same parts of the soul that like music does instrumental music. I, I, and And so why make this totalizing claim for poetry mm-hmm. instead of making a more modest claim and then saying, here's why Christians should read poetry. Which an argument I would be very right, open.
0: Right, that makes good sense. I have had students who received Gerard Manley Hopkins in an unworthy manner, though.
1: Oh well, absolutely, but they're probably <laughs> that's probably just <laughs> demonstrating the damage to their soul that's already been done.
2: <laughs> oh my, well, Michael. I mean, since we are talking about uh, sacraments, I mean, it seems like a, a natural place to uh, ask you to issue your standard caveat. That uh, you do not speak for the entire Catholic world, and then
1: say something myself. about
2: Dana Joya's suspicion of aggiornamento and its effects on the po- on the rich poetry of the faith, and you might also want to explain what aggiornamento is.
1: So this is not a uh, video podcast, so I don't know. Nathan, are you are you making uh, hand gestures when you say aggiornamento? In every, time. <laughs> every time, every <laughs> time, uh, aggiornamento <laughs> refers to the update to the to the catholic liturgy and uh various other aspects of catholic teaching um after vatican II, so it's a it's a it's a kind of update now i don't have a super strong opinion on it um i his argument and this is this is not an argument unique to him this is a, a fairly popular argument is that at least immediately after Vatican II, things got dumbed down. And um, I, I heard an interview with him on the First Things podcast where he says the, the more recent changes to the to the Catholic liturgy, which happened in the last 10 years or so, are a move back in the right direction. Well, I never went to a Catholic mass before the new changes. So I not only have I never experienced pre-Vatican II Catholicism, I haven't experienced the particular type of post-Vatican II Catholicism that he's criticizing. So I don't have a strong opinion I will say that, like in general, I wish all religion were more formalized and more rigorous. And, it, and so it sounds like it, it sounds like after Vatican II, things became less formalized and less rigorous, and and that seems like it could be a mistake to me. But I don't have like direct experience, and so I don't feel like I have, um, I don't have the 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 right to really judge the argument. I'm trying, find, I'm trying to find. I'm trying to. Yeah, you, you you can try. Go for it. When was
0: Vatican II again?
1: 1961, 62, 63. It's early 60s.
0: Okay, so Joya is Joya is old enough to have been conscious of the before and the after.
1: I don't as, know. As the a child, perhaps. Okay. Yeah. okay. and you, and you hear people. I, I've been to one Latin mass. I went to Latin mass at Westminster Cathedral in um in London and and the the latin mass is something like it, it is it is a different experience but if like the heart of the mass is the sacrament the reception of the sacrament i think at a certain point insisting on the latin mass might be missing the point but he's also not insisting on the latin mass and i don't want to put words in his mouth he's not yeah. he's not he's not a latin, he doesn't seem to be a latin mass only guy he's just pointing out that we lost something when we moved toward less formal language and i can certainly appreciate that argument mm-hmm.
2: right and and david i just looked it up he was born in 1951 so he would have so been he, a
1: child before vatican ii yeah okay. so he he, he he must have some some memories and you know lots of people felt that way um evelyn Waugh, for example refused to go to a, a an ordinary form mass that's what they call the, the vulgar masses instead of um mm-hmm. the extraordinary form which is what they call the the Latin mass. Cause, cause the idea is the Latin mass would not be normal anymore. We, I, I don't, I, I, I don't, I, like I said, I, I don't have strong opinions about the Latin mass in general. There is one in Atlanta. I don't go to it. It's, it's a long drive. I honestly, though, I probably wouldn't go to it anyway because I like, I like knowing what I'm saying and I don't speak Latin, but yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think maybe I'm, I'm falling into this trap. He talks about that, that, I'm I'm wanting I'm wanting it to be prose. I'm wanting it something that I can understand instead of a mystery that sweeps over me. And I'm sympathetic to that argument, I am.
0: Yeah. But he does he also seems to believe that English is capable of poetry. So
1: Yeah, in some ways I would think more capable of poetry than most of the romance languages. Like English has way more words yeah. than than Latin does. I, I really think the unfamiliarity of Latin to people is what makes that Latin mass powerful. The kind of
2: exoticism or
1: that's that's probably
2: not very sympathetic, but that's
1: an unsympathetic way to look at it. But so uh, assume some great mystery is happening in the Catholic mass, which I believe you guys probably don't. If you did, you would probably become Catholic, but assume that some great mystery is happening. Anything that would heighten that mystery, anything that would would be less familiar, anything that would make you feel less at home, seems like it could be a good thing to me. The times I've been to masses in French, or in Spanish, have had a similar effect on me. I, I know the order of the mass, so I have some idea of what's going on, but I can't understand it. It's in a language that's not my heart language. And so I, I feel more adrift in a way that I can certainly see as being beneficial to the mystery. On the other hand, I can also see that same adriftness as being just disorienting and leaving a person bored and you know, thinking about something else in the language they do speak. hmm but I'm all I'm his, all for making the language more formal. Talk. Certainly, yeah. The architecture talk. I I go to a post-Vatican II church. It's beautiful. Um, there are also many that are not, um, and so I'm I'm sympathetic to that argument as well. I, I certainly think that a Bauhaus-style Catholic church doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Even though I don't mind modernist architecture, um, but if I ever get this uh, this talk I'm giving about Marcel published uh, you you can you can read it my my conversion in a real sense starts in the postmodern church uh, up at St John's Abbey which is a, a a brutalist architectural structure and it's one of the holiest places I've ever been so uh, but even that's not f- not function following form or whatever you know or form following function even that is I mean they are going for beauty it's just a weird jagged, modernist kind of beauty. I don't know. I mean the, the Catholic service is beautiful and should be beautiful. Um the the churches should be beautiful. They should they should be designed to invoke awe in people. Um but I've been in very few Catholic churches that didn't including modernist ones that I think a lot of traditional Catholics would criticize. Do you know what I mean? Mhm. <laughs> I'm like I'm I'm trying to think The only Catholic Church I've ever been into that I would not call beautiful is the one we go to when we visit my wife's mother in Mississippi. And it's not beautiful because it's a very small, very poor congregation. And if your first thought when you go into this this place with these wonderful, open-hearted people is this building is not beautiful, I think you're missing the point. You know what I mean? Every other yeah. every other Catholic church I've ever been to, and I don't know, I've been to ten or fifteen of them, from Reims or not Reims Cathedral, Rouen Cathedral, to uh, to this like crazy modernist 1970s Catholic church we went to in Florida once. All of them, I would say, have been beautiful within a particular architectural style. So I'm not hung up on Gothic architecture. Not that I think he necessarily is either. What he says is the Catholic, the Vatican II vision, the notion that the future could be created by stripping away the past, I'm not sure that's a totally fair reading of Vatican II, but I'm not an expert, is still prevalent in many Christian churches. It resembled the modern architectural theories of the German Bauhaus school, which stripped buildings of all decoration, reducing them to streamlined squares and rectangles made of glass, stone, and steel, form, follow, function the Bauhaus architects proclaimed. Their geometric monuments line the business districts of modern cities, massive, anonymous, and inhuman. Beauty proved more difficult to calculate than occupancy and square footage, especially by architects who didn't understand that its function was not decorative but foundational. Beauty would have integrated humans into the buildings. So he's saying not so much that Catholic buildings don't do that. He's saying the Catholic mass no longer does that. Mm. And and again, that's a hard, a hard thing for me to judge just because... Um, just because I don't have experience of any other Catholic Mass, except that one time I went to, I I wasn't even a a Catholic yet, I went to that Latin Mass at Westminster Cathedral.
2: Well, David, one of the most fun questions that Joya explores is what makes poetry Christian? So what are the three broad definitions that he presents, and how does he triangulate between them, and what would you keep, and what would you change?
0: Well, he's got three that he moves one this is it, it's a difficult uh a, a difficult uh definition to sort out and uh he he points out a few different uh, attempts to anthologize christian poetry uh and, and the the logic that uh, led the who who whoever's making the, the selections to uh to sort those out, but the, the three that he, he isolates are, uh, the identity, religious content, and then, uh, a sort of more broadly speaking, an authentic spiritual engagement. So identity, it's a Christian poem because the person who wrote it is a Christian. Well, I mean, depending on when and where you're talking about, um, many sorts of, uh, almost anyone in a, uh, I, a pre-eighteenth-century English context would be at least a nominal Christian, uh, because uh, it wasn't uh, respectable and in some cases legal uh, to to be an atheist. And uh, you know, leaving aside the the treatment of of Jews at different times in uh, early modern and pre-modern uh, England uh, you know almost every poet that you're going to be uh, that you're going to be dealing with is someone who at least on paper is Christian and not, which, which means that not only uh the dream of the rude to cite in an Anglo-Saxon poem not only is the dream of the rude Christian but I suppose the uh the the naughty riddles about onions and uh, any any other form of poem that you might find uh, in that time or or other later times would be uh, is our uh, Oh gosh, uh, are are limericks uh, are are they Christian poetry? Because I, I I can't re- I can't recall. Um, you know, some of the, the major limerick poets, but I'm sure at least some of them. Uh, attended church somewhere all right so 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 that seems kind of a problem to just say that the poet is christian or the culture is sort of broadly christendom ergo this is christian poetry uh so religious content is it is the poem explicitly about the religious content of the christian faith in particular uh the orthodox um and and like little o orthodox so like conciliar orthodoxy not um I, I don't know, some some aberrant Christianity or um, another faith that might be making use of some image from Christianity or whatever. But, you know, this is a genuinely Christian poem about genuinely Christian things. Um, but that maybe feels a little bit too broad too. Uh, you might have a poem by uh, by a Christian author who's attempting to You know, express something that they believe in in a in a kind of faithful way, but the poem itself is not explicitly about the tenets of Christianity. Which leads to uh, the third one, which is that any kind of authentic spiritual engagement um, in what might be a broadly Christian context being considered a Christian poem so uh so including then not not only kind of known devotional poets like gerard manley hopkins or john dunn but also like some of you know william blake's crazy visionary stuff or you know poetry by people who you know the 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 christians of their time would have regarded as uh aberrant or heretical um you know, uh, is Christian poetry spiritual and not religious, I guess, is is kind of the question this third one asks.
2: Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of the approach to pop culture that says, you know, this Lady Gaga album is more Christian than your evangelical church services.
0: Yeah, yes, because it's engaged with topics that Christians ought to be interested in. Um, in right, right. Maybe kind of authentic ways. Well you know is is that what christianity is authentic spiritual engagement with you know stuff um you know i think it's got more content than that um but each of these uh each of these perspectives kind of highlights uh the complication of it uh he he moots uh, a, a bit of a definition Um, He says, if we combine the best features of the various approaches, we might define Christian poetry as verse that explicitly or implicitly addresses religious subjects written by authors who view existence from a Christian perspective. So uh, that kind of broadens broadens it out. It may not uh, necessarily be a poem that is exploring Uh, explicitly the tenets of Christianity, but you can at least see how. uh, The person who is writing it is exploring whatever it is that they're that they're writing about, whatever it is that they're making sense of, or um, making beautiful or contemplating in their verse uh, that what lies behind that is a a foundation of of principles, assumptions, uh, ways of making sense of the world, ways of seeing. Uh, of, of finding meaning behind uh, the events of the world uh, in the way that Christians do, um, in the modes that Christians do. And I, I, I find that useful. Um, I, I, I enjoyed his, uh, his kind of survey of, of Christian English poetry, and I, I think this is a useful section to look over if I were to be teaching a course on Christian poetry or something on that nature, um, I might present this section of the article just as kind of a starting point for uh, having a discussion. What, what 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 is the subject that we are considering here? Just to, to not assume that it's been defined before we even start the conversation.
1: Starting point of an argument seems like a good way to describe these kind of definitional um essays it's kind of like those here the 500 greatest songs of all time is defined by rolling stone well i mean nobody's going to agree with the whole list but the fun (laughs) of a list like that is where you agree and where you disagree and 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 having an argument you know real or imagined about it so yeah i i would agree i would agree with what david said
2: right i think that third approach is, is the one that you know uh kind of resonated with me, not because I agree with it, but because it gives me a name for things that I have seen in the world. And I kinda already tipped my, my my heart my hand about this, but you know, I, I I feel like I've seen approaches, especially to pop culture, but also to other kinds of uh written art uh that would treat anything that, you know, I mean, the crass way to put it was anything that advances the kind of politics that I find virtuous, we can put the name Christian on that, and anything that advances a kind of politics that I find odious, we'll call that demonic. And, uh, you know, it it strikes me that, you know, like you were saying, David, I mean, you know, some kind of connection to the centuries-long, not years-long, you know, traditions of worship and of gathering and of interpretation have to be involved some way in what we call Christian poetry, that, that you know, to be called a Christian poem has to connect to it with some kind of continuity. It can't merely be, uh, you know, a or it shouldn't merely be, pardon me, it can obviously be because people do it, but it shouldn't merely be uh, <laughs> a kind of uh, emotivist uh, I approve of this, so therefore, it's Christian. It's, it's kind of like the the, mm-hmm. the discussion of uh, ultimate terms that Michael had earlier.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, just considering that uh, we, we can see how this this definition of Christian poetry, uh, the way that it develops, um, I, I think we can see pretty clearly through the 19th century and into uh, and into the 20th century when. Uh, Art and literature and poetry itself coming to be seen more and more as kind of a. A, a spiritual uh, and, a, and, a, and a kind of light, enlightened thing um, even kind of a substitute for received religion where you know art beauties, you know, our art is the thing that's going to. Uh, that's going to replace. Religion.
1: Right, yeah. Uh, Terry Eagleton's Culture and the Death of God talks about that in some detail. Yeah.
0: Yep, yep. So this is just that. I, and, and, well, not just that, but this this is uh, connected to that, and maybe some of those assumptions rub off.
2: Right, right. Well, Michael, I'm going to hustle us through these last couple questions just because I know my family wants me to cook supper. Uh, but I want to hear you comment on the article's closing argument about Christianity and the five senses, because when I read that, it struck me as close kin to some of your public statements and writings about your move from Protestant to Catholic Christian worship. Uh, did you also discern that common ground, or am I grasping at superficial similarities?
1: No, I think I think, uh, think Joya uh, and I are on the same page about that, that, that one of the things that attracted to me to Catholicism is that it it was not solely I, I won't even say primarily, I suppose a um, an intellectualized religion that there is this experience you can go through and you receive the sacraments. And it does it kind of doesn't matter what you feel like you need to be in a state of grace, but it kind of doesn't matter what you feel like this thing is actually happening. And it's happening to your body at the same time that it's happening to your soul. And that was um, that was really an important part of my conversion, excuse me. And um, I like I like that Joya is connecting those senses with beauty and making a case um, making a case for beauty and, and the Catholic tradition does have you know a huge emphasis on beauty and, and obviously, um, as I said earlier, I've never been in a Catholic church that didn't strike me as beautiful as well. So like I, I, I'm with him on that whether you can call all beauty poetry is, uh, is another question.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and
1: it's interesting. Cause
2: I mean, of course, my mind goes to the etymology of it, you know, I mean, it's the, it's the Greek poian, So, I mean, it is made things. So, I mean, you really could extend that to a very broad range of phenomena. Uh, but I, 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 I also hear your objection and David's objection, you know, when I say that Christianity has always involved made things. And you say yeah but that's usually not what we mean when we say
1: the noun poetry Mm -hmm. right one if you're going to open it up to made things at that point you're going to have to admit that the slideshow that they do in uh in your presbyterian your evangelical presbyterian church on sunday morning is also a form of poetry then if what we're talking about is made things you know
2: Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So if
1: you you open it up to to include everything, it's going to include all the things you don't want it to include as well.
2: Mm -hmm. Right. Or I I might want to include them, but Joya doesn't seem to want to include them.
1: Right.
0: (laughs) Well, (laughs) and excluding from them things that have also historically, in some sense, been there. If you want to just say this beautiful traditional space is the poetry space and we cannot have the non-poetry here, well homily has been up inside of you know that cathedral you know for just about as long as you know the rest of the liturgy so you know are, are you going to excise the prose of the homily i mean the the very architectural form of the earliest christian churches in the west were based on roman basilicas which were you know places for uh or radical Uh, for oratory, for, you know, for, for speeches, for doing business and discussing the business of the community. Um, You know, are we going to remove rhetoric because it's not poetry from a space that was shaped for the needs of rhetoric? Uh, I don't know. It's an argument that I think is trying to argue for too much.
2: Yeah. And and David, I, I like the fact that you bring rhetoric into this because I do wonder, I mean, certainly I would consider the homily a a literary genre of some sort. Uh, it has conventions, it has exemplary practitioners, it has, uh, you know, artifacts that rightfully get included in anthologies. Uh, so, I mean, you know, I, I, I wouldn't call it identical with, uh, you know, whatever William Wordsworth is doing. But I would say that, I mean, it's not entirely unrelated either.
0: Yeah. Well, when we consider that, you know, one of the most influential, influential books in the Christian tradition for teaching us how to read um, sacred literary texts deeply and attentively with, you know, different valences of meaning is Augustine's On Christian Doctrine. And Augustine began as a rhetoric teacher who decided to go to church to hear some good oratory. You know? Right, right. They blend together in
2: a lot of ways. They do indeed. All right, I'm going to keep hustling us, and I apologize, guys, but uh, David, one particular maneuver at the end of this article irritated me, and that's when, after pages of telling us readers about moments when those other people dismissed really interesting Christian poetry with reductionist formulas, Joya dismisses what at this point is a couple of generations of Christian poetry of some kind, with an equally airy wave of the hand. And I'm referring, of course, to his half-sentence dismissal of, quote, the banalities of pop worship tunes, end quote. Do you take this as Joya's subtle joke here, or do you take him really to intend to reduce everything from Jesus People Rock to megachurch house bands to the Christian albums that Michael has had us talk about on this very podcast, uh, to reduce all of that to a six-word fart?
0: Yeah, I didn't take it as a joke. I I, I think he I, I I think it came across as maybe the most comradingly line in the article, um, which I, I I'm I'm certain that if you if you pushed a bit, uh, he would he would probably he, he would almost certainly concede the point i
1: mean maybe i'll it. play some daniel Ames records for him when uh, yeah. we're in yeah. uh May,
0: <laughs> maybe right. so but uh, you know he's he, he's he is not ignorant of contemporary poetry <laughs> right One it's will hope yeah <laughs> yeah it's 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 not like he's he's some sort of you know poetic traditionalist uh who stops paying attention after elliot um you know, he, he knows that contemporary poetry happens. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure he knows that, uh, contemporary writers of musical lyric, um, sometimes, you know, get nominated for Nobel prizes. Um, like it's, it's possible to write a good song (laughs) and just to kind of wave hands and say, yeah, there, there are banal ones, but there's all, there's always been banal worship songs. I mean, that that's, that's nothing new. Not everything Charles Wesley wrote was a humdinger. Um, Isaac Watts has some really, some really good hymns, and he's also got a a, pr- a pretty thick kind of, uh, you know, B side that nobody ever sings anymore. Um, you know, and, and certainly there's, there are songs that are sung today that are, you know, Worse than other songs of the past and the present, you know that it, it's it, it again. It's it's kind of a hand wave, a generic hand waving, you know. These kids in the loud rock music, which is I I, I don't know. It's it, it
1: I, I don't know though, David. I since wrong. leaving evangelicalism, I do not miss that music at all.
0: Well, I, I'm not asking you to miss the music, but would you say that? everyone who would necessarily fall under in the ambit of that phrase is justly belongs in the ambit of that phrase.
1: He says pop worship music. He doesn't say Christian music Mm -hmm. And, and pop worship music. When I hear that, I think, um, I can't even remember names anymore. Um, I think the stuff that gets played at your megachurch church on, on Sunday mornings, that's how I read that phrase. Now maybe maybe I am maybe I am being silly and not including Mark Hurd and pop worship music, but that's just not that's not what I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: and I and I guess my thing is, I mean, there is enough of a range of the kinds of music that gets played that I would still want to differentiate between better and worse specimens of it.
1: Yeah, and I think that's fair. I, I I think even even in that genre, there is stuff that has some poetic elements at the very least. There's some and, stuff
2: and some of beautiful. it, as David noted earlier, is simply the psalms set to rock and
0: roll. Right. Mm-hmm. The psalms, which also are um, frequently repetitious, frequently return to the same phrases again and again. Will frequently you know, repeat and vary the same idea over the course of several verses. There's one really, really, really long one that basically says the same kind of stuff about the Word of God for, like, ever.
2: <laughs> yes, indeed. And then, of course, there's Psalm 150 that, I mean, if you can find depth there, I, I am <laughs> impressed. Everybody make loud noises! Make loud noises with instruments. Make loud noises, bang rocks together. Make loud noises, <laughs> clap hands. Whoa! <Woo-hoo>! Oh Lord.
0: <laughs> okay, Psalm one fifty is the it's it's the it's the band solo psalm. It's the one where a soft is like pointing to the harp section and go, and go cymbals and go right. Like that's that's what's going on in Psalm one fifty. Uh, Indeed, indeed, indeed. We're losing a lot without the instrumentation, I think.
2: Uh, Fair enough, fair enough. (laughs) David just turned Psalm 150 into a jazz session.
1: (laughs) David, Uh, a well-known fan of jazz. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed, yes, indeed.
2: Well, Michael, when I printed out this article, it weighed in at 11 sheets of paper front and back. Obviously, we have not gotten to every interesting bit So, Michael, tell us about one more interesting passage in the article, hand the torch to David, uh, and then I'm going to go cook supper for my family.
1: Yeah, I'm going to read a paragraph real quick. It's toward the end. This change in attitude will require a sort of great awakening. If we lose the capacity to articulate our faith, we are diminished both individually and collectively. We will have no living language commensurate with our feelings and experience, no words to describe the glory of creation. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. Let us not describe it with bromides and clichés that barely suffice as slogans on the church marquee. I'm with him there. Let's let's try to create something beautiful and interesting and in and, you know, profound Um, Let's not be satisfied with the easiest possible way to say that. Mm.
0: David, what do you got? Well, of course, you you know what paragraph I'm going to hone in on. Uh, He mentions Anglo-Saxon poetry. and uh, He names the Dream of the Rude, which, granted, Dream of the Rude is amazing. It's fantastic. But almost all old English poetry is christian poetry i i I know that what gets taught in school is beowulf uh with every every once in a while someone will venture into the wanderer and some riddles but outside of outside of that poetry there's not uh there's not a whole lot of old english poetry that isn't isn't christian so uh, i appreciate him kind of Tipping his hat there, though it struck me as, as as just extremely weird that he doesn't at least tip his hat at Cadman. um You know, it's I it is meaningful to me as a Christian and as a lit guy that the first name poet in my language is one who composes a hymn. I that that is that is meaningful to me. It seems like that I, I don't know it. I'm looking in that paragraph and and wondering if Cadman was ever in a version of it. And if he he was, why did he get cut? Come on, man.
2: Very good, very good. Well, listeners, uh, I definitely recommend this article. It is a rich conversation. Uh, I think we've highlighted, you know, some of its uh, strongest passages and some of the places where we wish it would have swerved elsewise. Uh, But our next show, Michael, what's it going to be about?
1: We're going to talk about a poem. We're going to talk about John Updike's late-in-life poem, Americana, which is all about—well, we'll we'll talk about it next week.
2: Excellent, excellent. Until then, listeners, uh, you can find us at uh, christianhumanist.org. You can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, and uh, there does exist a Twitter account, uh ch radio network i have no idea when uh, a tweet went out from that account last but it's there uh christian humanist podcast is part of the christian humanist radio network Um, our audio editor is michael thank you michael and uh in behalf of michael and in behalf of david grubbs i'm nathan gilmore saying let your sins be strong let your faith be stronger